Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 121, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And this podcast comes out every Friday. We are a weekly retro gaming podcast. And I'd say, you know, we've done this show for two and a half years now. Which it's in crazy, itself is it? nuts, isn't it? But I think the thing that I'm most proud of about this podcast is the sheer breadth of stuff that we cover in the realm of retro gaming. Totally. We like to cover different subjects and kind of keep it fresh because, you know, two and a half years, we've had a different guest every single week. And I remember after like, uh, what, fifth or sixth episode, we had people saying to us, that's it, you've peaked now. You can't get anyone else. You've yeah, covered everything. You're going to run out. Last week, we did a, an episode about Bad Influence um, with Andy Crane, who was a TV presenter. Week before that, it was a special about Bullfrog, a legendary company. Before that, it was about California Games. We cover so much on this show. And this week... If you remember Rare, possibly one of the greatest console and arcade game manufacturers of all time. Oh, yeah. We're, we're talking Killer Instinct and GoldenEye as well. Remember the soundtrack from GoldenEye? That was just horrifically good. And Time Splitters. Oh, yeah. Time Splitters. And these are actually local productions, you know, Time Splitters, because uh, Free Radical Designs was based in Nottingham. So we've got Graham Norgate come into the studio and talk to us about doing a soundtrack for Killer Instinct, Golden Eye, and Time Splitters. Even, you know, if we just covered one of those games, it'd be an amazing show, but covering all three and more. Graham Norgate is going to be our special guest who did the soundtrack for those legendary rare games. He's coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And speaking of interesting people that we talk to over the last couple of years, I think one of the things that we found most enjoyable is taking the Retro Hour out on the road. It's good. It means I can go out, buy games, eat unhealthy food, you know. Drink way too much. Drink way too much, meet listeners as well. That's the nicest thing about it. It is because, you know, we record this show middle of the week in a little badly decorated room. You don't really realise that you're going out there to the big wide world because you see numbers going up on the podcast every week. But when you get out there and actually people come over and shake your hand, they're like, oh, Dan Ravi, we listen every week. It's like something else, isn't it? It's crazy. And there's one place, I've, I've been to Scotland before, absolutely beautiful place, and I've never been to Glasgow. So I'm going to go there and meet all the Scottish guys, and that's going to be excellent because I've met a few in Play Blackpool because it's yeah. kind of close to the border, but... It will be totally different in Glasgow. I can imagine it's got a unique vibe. Well, Ravi did want to do his best Glaswegian accent. I advise you not to before you go there. Glasgow! <laughs> <laughs> That's Ravi getting decked now that yeah. he arrives off uh, Glasgow train station. But we do, you know, big events all throughout the summer. We have a Play Expo London coming up. Uh, we're back in Blackpool for Play Expo in October. But before all that is going to be Scotland's biggest gaming expo, Play Expo Glasgow at the Brayhead Arena. Yes, and they've never done panels here before, so we're going to be doing a little panel talk. Unfortunately, Dan can't make it, but we're going to have Kim Justice, we're going to have Slopes, the Scottish Pinball Association as well, and there's going to be some other guests. Loads of stuff there as well. I mean, if you've been to a Play Expo event around the country, um, like you said, pinball machines there, arcade machines. Cosplay. Trading areas if you want to pick up games, often a lot cheaper than you'll find them on eBay as well. And that's happening over the weekend of the 9th and 10th of June. Now we always look after our listeners, don't we? Oh, yeah. If you want to come along, how's about we give away a couple of free weekend passes? Yeah, we'll have no question on this. Just enter the competition and we'll announce a winner. And you, 
need to make sure you're available for the day. Yes, <laughs> that is very important. We've had a few in the past where we've emailed winners and they're like, oh, I didn't realise it was that weekend. It's like my dog's birthday. <laughs> so make sure you're available on the weekend of the 9th and 10th of June. We've got a couple of pairs of tickets to give away. So this will get you and a friend into both days, the Saturday and the Sunday of Play Expo in Glasgow. And all you've got to do is head to our website, theretrohour.com. You'll find a little form, fill in your details on there as well. Um, we'll leave this open in a couple of weeks. Yeah. We'll close it on Friday, the 20th. 5th of May at midnight so you've got a couple of weeks to go in there fill in your details to get your name in the drawer um, read all the terms and conditions on there as well and we'll pick two winners at random and uh, you'll win a pair of weekend passes to be there so have a look on our website right now well there's one thing when I go to these shows I always want to look cool you know the only time we ever do look cool to be fair <laughs> so <laughs> we have got a little easter egg in this week's show because the thing is we always do try to pick out like retro gaming kind of t-shirts and stuff like that and we often get people come up and go oh, where did you get that from so right now if you have a look on our website theretrohour.com this is a little way that you can support the show and get yourself something really cool if you want to stand out in the crowd if you're going to like play expo or another retro gaming yeah, show around the country yeah we picked out a couple we're going to put them on the website under easter eggs and I'm looking at this one. It's a Crash Bandicoot Cortex Laboratories T-shirt, and it's pretty cool because it doesn't look like your crazy Crash T-shirt. It looks like some kind of experimental hipster thing. <laughs> People will come up to you, and if they know, they know. Well, I talked about this on last week's show, and I've actually bought one of these now. So um, I will be wearing this at Play Expo, and I'm not wearing the Retro Hour T-shirt repping, obviously. And this but it is... gets too sweaty. <laughs> it says T-shirts we wear, the Retro Hour T-shirts. Don't give you a lot of breathing room. We've only got one for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want, uh, you know, want to look really cool at these retro shows, this, I think, is amazing. It is an official Atari T-shirt of Adventure. And the colour looks really cool. It's really vibrant red as well. And Adventure is obviously so on trend right now because of Ready Player One. And, you know, we were talking last week about the fact that people are selling cartridges of Adventure on eBay for, like, five grand. So if you want to have, like, pretty much the coolest thing in retro gaming right now on your T-shirt, and we'll put both of those links, and you'll be supporting the show by using our Amazon affiliate. You'll find that on the website, theretrohour.com. And speaking of supporting the Retro Hour podcast, we also have a little Hall of Fame on the front page of our website too. Now, this is where you can make a donation into the running of the show. Because, you know, getting to all these places, getting to Glasgow, in it cheap? No, <laughs> that was the worst accent I've ever heard. What was that? I think Newcastle. A, I think it's a cross between Geordie, Scottish, <laughs> yeah. and uh, maybe a bit of Welsh thrown Welsh, in there as well. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's not cheap getting to all these events and doing the show week in, week out. And we could even do this, you know, if you make a donation, I promise not to do an an accent on next week yeah, to prevent that <laughs> so if you do make a donation into the running of the podcast 100% of the cash that we get goes back into the running of the retro hour and allows us to keep doing the show week in week out and you'll get a little shout in a future episode of the podcast in the hall of fame now this week finding their place in the retro hour hall of fame Carl Perry Kim Jorgensen Vincent Feel and Patrick McGinty. Thank you so much for your donations, guys. It really means a lot to us. And you can do the same. Dead easy. It's via PayPal. Or if you're into cryptocurrency, we accept that as well. Uh, the link to our PayPal and all of that is on the front page of theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our interview with Graham Norgate, uh, every week we kind of we have a little nerd around during the week, don't we? We check the retro gaming blogs and Twitter and Reddit, and we look at a couple of stories that take our interest. Yeah, it's always kind of stuff that interests us, and uh, this really interests me. Two out of three children don't know what a floppy disk is. Now, this is a survey by YouGov, and they surveyed 2,011 kids. Well, they say kids. It's essentially under 18s, 6 to 18-year-olds, to find out how familiar they are with technology from the previous generations. 
And like you said, two-thirds of under-18s have no idea what a floppy disk is. They'll think it's a save icon, don't they? That's the... <laughs> but they've also, they've, interestingly, they've got other technologies as well on this list that they've surveyed kids with. So it's not just your headline-grabbing floppy disks. Um, 86% are absolutely clueless about CFAX and pages. Yeah, I mean, pages doesn't surprise me, really. Because, I mean, mobiles have been commonplace for about 20 years now. Well, well, 40%, you know, we're talking about this music cassette revolution. 40% don't know what one is. (laughs) 37% don't know what a VHS video cassette is. Now, the question is, Dan, did you know about previous technologies when you were a kid? If someone had to show me, like, an 8-track when I was 8, I probably wouldn't have known what it is. Yeah, exactly, like... And I guess it's progressed so quickly that there's been so many technologies that you forget about it. Yeah, like if someone showed me a gramophone when I was a kid, I would have known that it looks a bit like a record player. It's probably like like vinyl or something. Yeah, I must have been a nerdier kid because I knew that was at 78. And I I think it was more vinyl technology with me then and stuff and kind of audio-based stuff. You but then all the video came in later and all of that, didn't it? Well, you mentioned 78 Vinyl Air, actually. I got a really vivid memory then. My granddad gave me a load of his old vinyl. He gave me a record deck that played 78s as well, but I'd speed all the 33s up to 78. Stuff like Paul Weller records and all that. And they sound like happy hardcore. Me and my brother were like, yeah. <laughs> yeah granddad's got some beats. <laughs> You're playing it at the wrong speed. He'd be like, yeah. So that's weird the things you remember, isn't it? Um, check this out. 23% of kids don't know what a postcard is. A postcard. Oh, that's sad. Because that's always a nice thing, isn't it? A kind of postcard. It's not It's not a victim of technology. It's just a victim of people not sending postcards anymore. That's the thing. If you go to the seaside or something, though, or a gift shop, you, always, you see postcards still, though. Yeah, yeah. And even stuff like an overhead projector. Now, I don't go to, like, you know, conference centres or lecture halls or that very often these days, but I'm sure I've seen overhead projectors at like places like that in recent years. To be honest, the only overhead projectors I've seen have been cheap people on eBay hacking massive screens <laughs> with them to play like <laughs> Xbox games and stuff, so I don't know. You know, it's not surprising. I mean, I've got like cousins who are like, you know, pre-teens, maybe like 10, 11, and I actually remember my little cousin Ellie came over and I had a bunch of floppy disks um, next to my Amiga in the living room. I had my Amiga CD TV in there, and she was using them as, like, placemats, putting, like, a drink on I'm like, no! Blow the kids' minds, showing them kind of old, amazing technology. Yeah, but it, it's interesting, but, yeah, it just really does prove, um, A, how quickly the world's moving on, and B, how old we are. Yeah. So, there you go. For a nice little depressing read, I'll put that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, speaking of being a kid, there was always one system that was way out of our reach. Oh, yes, this was the Neo Geo, and there has been a plethora of mini systems that have been coming out at the moment. You've had your mini NES, mini SNES. C64 as well. A mini Mega Drive coming out as well. This one, though, because I remember the previous attempt at doing, like, a new Neo Geo console. Again, a bit like the the App Games Mega Drive, it did kind of get its haters on YouTube. People weren't a big fan of it. This is essentially going to be a miniaturized version of the Neo Geo, then. Yeah, and, you know, the Neo Geo was kind of your your arcade-accurate machine and you'd have games like Fatal Fury and King of Fighters and it's its 40th anniversary, so it kind of makes sense releasing it out at this time. That's crazy, isn't it? Because I remember when, when I was a kid, though, you'd read about Neo Geos and occasionally you might see a little clip of them on Games Master or something and, again, it would be what you imagine, like, millionaire kids had. <laughs> You never thought in a million years you'd get to own one at home or ever even play one, Well, really. well they say that there was this kind of uh, 
venture that they tried, which was the Neo Geo X. Yeah, a couple and, of years uh, ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah that, that, that kind of didn't work that well. Um, and it was a bit of a disappointment, and their kind of license got took away and stuff. So I'm glad this new machine's coming through, because I, I just don't know. Will people buy it, though? Because did many people have these games available back then, or was it bigger in America? I'm not sure. I think you make an interesting point there, because we went to a retro gaming show probably about four years ago. I was playing on a, a Neo Geo, and I must admit it was probably maybe the second time ever I'd ever played one. I think I played one in a shop at one stage, but it's not a system I'm all that familiar with. More so in recent years because of YouTube and looking at forums and that kind of thing and emulation. I always remember the Neo Geo as being like a home console, but they're actually doing a tiny arcade cabinet with 40 built-in games. Yeah, yeah, I guess to kind of had that arcade connection, but these tabletop cabs are really popular, aren't they, at the moment? I've seen a lot of people building them on YouTube themselves. Yeah, well, I made one recently, um, Monster Joysticks, I believe they're called. Yeah. And they they actually sent me one. I'm going to put, um, I'll put it on my YouTube channel very soon. Kind of a joystick that you put a Raspberry Pi inside, but it's got the proper arcade parts and everything. So I've been playing around with that recently, but there is just something very satisfying about, you know, getting your hands on a proper arcade joystick. Yeah. (laughs) Let's let's hope it has a SD slot so you can load other stuff in. I'm sure someone's going to hack it anyway. We we know from doing this show for two and a half years, (laughs) anything like this that gets announced, it gets hacked pretty much day one when it's on the market, doesn't it? Well, there's one thing that we were covering last week that was hacked, which was the Nintendo Switch. And they were able to play GameCube games on there and all these kind of games that weren't originally on the machine. But I think maybe that gave Nintendo a bit of a kick up the backside to finally get some classic games released on there. Yeah, totally. Because um, they've emailed Kotaku, who's been asking about this virtual console because you know the virtual console came out before on the wii u and it supported the wii and then they had the virtual console before for the um gamecube they're now saying um there are no current plans to bring classic games under the banner of virtual console now today youtube has got into meltdown over this i saw ign do like a you know one of their typical kind of Oh my god! Like the girls crying her eyes out. No the backwards compatibility. That. But they don't actually say that, do they? They say they're not going to release them under the banner of Virtual Console. Yeah, so maybe it won't just be a straight up kind of port of it, or you can have your old ones. It may be a case that you get a revamp, or you kind of have your original version and then you have your HD version on top. Or they must might be just trying to make a fast book and have them individually kind of packaged. Well, they've already announced going to be releasing 20 NES games onto the Switch anyway, just not going to be calling it Virtual Console. But you think about that, I mean, uh, the Virtual Console branding, it was on the 3DS, the Wii, the Wii U, it's been yeah, around it's about. Yeah, it's kind of like their legacy, isn't it? It's like, uh, what is it, compatibility mode on Windows, you know? Yeah, but it's been around a decade, though, and I guess maybe, because the Switch is a platform that, I mean, you look at the moment, like um, Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze came mm. out on the uh, on the Switch over the weekend. And I believe it had something like, it sold 400, and I read something, it was 491% more games on its first weekend than the Wii U did in its lifetime, wow. that title. So there's so many people. I've been It's a bloody good title, that one is as well, I must Fantastic say. Fantastic game. Yeah. But a lot of people are kind of getting back into Nintendo. You know, really, I mean, if you're talking proper gamers, for the first time since maybe the N64 or mm, the GameCube. Yeah. So they missed a lot of those games. So maybe they're thinking Virtual Console is a bit of a hangover from that generation we want to forget now. Yeah, don't get them to buy the old Wii U CDs and then put them in. Get them to buy a brand new copy. <laughs> well, yeah. you can't put a CD in the Switch anyway. Oh, but, yeah, true. <laughs> but I think 
From what I've heard, though, I don't want them to focus completely on the NES because, again, like I said there, there's a lot of maybe GameCube games that people didn't have a lot of experience with or even the Wii because the Wii, there were some great games on there. But again, the, the main people that bought that were like your grandma playing Wii, Wii Sports and stuff, wasn't it, really? Yeah. So I would like to see them actually kind of, they have to rework the controls a bit, I think, but kind of get some of those later games on there, not just the simplistic kind of NES stuff. Even like SNES onwards, N64 games would be great on there too. So I don't think Nintendo are going to do away with, you know, their classic stuff. No, they're just going to rebrand it or yeah, something. Exactly. <laughs> Calm down, everybody. <laughs> now let's talk a bit about the... Commodore 64, one of our favourite platforms. Oh, yeah, I just got mine working the other day. I worked out how to turn it on. <laughs> that's, yeah, that switch on the side that says me on off. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing about the, the Commodore 64 is, you know, back here in Britain in the 80s when everyone had a Commodore 64 at home or a Spectrum, um, the, the de facto way to get software was cassette tape. Only the posh kids or, you know, people that you'd read about in magazines had floppy disk drives. Um, and this is floppy, floppy disk, right? This is... Uh, yeah, five yeah, quarter-inch disk. Yeah. The thing about it is they released a lot of games and kind of demos that used track loaders on those. Okay. So they might have copy protection built in. Some demos are actually written specifically for the 1541 floppy drive, and they'll kind of use tricks in there because the, the 1541 floppy drive cost as much, if not more, than the computer did. <laughs> okay. And knowing Commodore, they probably put some weird stuff in there that, you know, you could exploit. And, yeah. It was a whole computer, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> it had the same CPU as the 64 in there. Oh, God. So essentially it was a full computer in a box with a floppy disk drive. Obviously that put prices up, but it also meant in recent years, emulating it was a bit more tricky than it might be for other platforms. Now, I did a video on YouTube about a little device called the SD2IEC. Okay, so this was like a little SD card kind of converter. Yeah. So it would read it like the SD cards. Yeah, so you plug it into the serial port on the Commodore 64. You put it in cassette port to get a bit of power off there as well, the 5 volts, I think it is. And then you could put an SD card in there. But you'd often have to have things kind of custom made for it or kind of tweaked a little bit. If you tried, like, for example, demos that mm. relied on banging the metal in the floppy disk drive, they'd fall over because it wasn't cycle compatible. Yeah, yeah. And I think there, there were some higher-end ones. I've got a feeling like something like the, the 1541 Ultimate could emulate it, but they're very expensive. Now it turns out there is a way to do pretty much 100% accurate Commodore 1541 floppy disk drive emulation using a Raspberry Pi, of course. Ah, oh, yes. Raspberry Pi is our saviour. Doesn't it always come to the rescue? Now, this is called the Pi 1541. Now... This is an open source project um, by the looks of it. And apparently you can, you know, if you've got all the parts together for this, it would be still under $50, they reckon. So it's very affordable. Created by a guy called Steve White. Yeah. And I think this is amazing because it never ceases to amaze me what you can do with the Raspberry Pi, first of all. And I think we've talked about it on the show before that most of our audience, I think, are probably the same. We've all got Raspberry Pis or similar boards lying around doing nothing. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, you can probably have a 1541 emulator um, for even cheaper because you've probably got one at home anyway. But the fact that it's so sp specific and somebody's actually gone out and thought, this doesn't work, so let's make a solution. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. And a cheap solution at that. 
Yeah, I mean, he said, you know, you can pretty much whip it all up in an hour if you want to make it yourself. And he's going to be releasing the source soon, so it is open source. And I'm sure people start building them and selling them on forums. Can't wait for the 3D printed cases. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing. I've actually got a little 3D printed Commodore 64 case, but to have a little floppy drive, that'd be quite cool. Oh, yeah. So if you want to find out more about that, I I love projects like that, though. Because, again, that is a guy who, who saw a need in the market for something. He thought, I'm going to spend a weekend making this and release it to everyone for free. And, and now everyone's rejoicing. And that is what's cool about the retro gaming community, though, isn't it? That people will just take their time to do it just for fun and to help other people out. Totally. Now, if you are a Commodore 64 fan, we've got a little treat for you coming up in just a minute. And I'll admit, this is something I never, ever thought I'd hear. Well, Graham Norgate, who we're just about to interview, he's provided us with Commodore 64 versions that he did. So he was trying to redo the whole GoldenEye soundtrack on a C64. So he's provided us with two of the tunes on this. So this is exclusive, never been heard. And we're going to play in and play out with these songs. So N64 to C64. There we go. I like it. Right, they will be out again next Friday, guys. If you do listen on iTunes or any other platforms, uh, please keep your reviews coming in as well. We've got some really nice iTunes reviews, actually, over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, some Stitcher and even Google Play as well. Yeah, I our first Google Play one last Woo-hoo. week as well. And obviously it helps us get up the charts and helps new people come in through the door. And we've said it before that, you know, having a recommendation from a listener carries so much more weight than like an advert or us talking about it on Twitter, for example. So, uh, yeah, do tell your friends. They will help, you know, push the cause a bit further. Right, then let's get some stories about games like Killer Instinct, Time Splitters and GoldenEye. Joining us in the studio this week, our special guest is Graham Norgate. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is the bit of the show that we look forward to when we get on our special guest. And this week, we can actually see him because he's in the studio with us. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Graeme Norgate. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming. It's always nicer to do it in the studio and have a bit of a chat rather than doing it on the phone or relying on Skype connections and all that kind of thing. So thanks for uh, spending your evening in here with us. It's a pleasure. (laughs) But let's get into, you know, some of these amazing games that you've worked on, stuff like uh, Killer Instinct, GoldenEye the Time Splitters series, you know, so many incredible titles. But kind of going, you know, all the way back to day one, what was it that first got your interest in computers started and where did it all begin? Probably coin-ops, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm old enough in the tooth that um, home computers were not really a thing. Um, I mean, my first computer was a Spectrum, but, but before that there was definitely an arcade explosion around because of Space Invaders and Pac-Man. And um, it's strange thinking about it now, but at the time, you'd get arcade machines in general shops. So I'd go to my local record shop, and I can remember that they had Pac-Man, Asteroids, and Mooncrester. And there was always a crowd of boys playing those all day long. I don't think any of of us ever bought a record. (laughs) But um, if they were busy, I could leg it up the road and go to a newsagent where they had scramble. So before I had a home computer, that was what I was playing and that was, I was obsessed by them. You know, it was similar for me, actually. I don't know if you're the same, Ravi, but we had like a, on our school lunch break, there was like a fish and chip shop near my school and they had like three arcades in there. They had Golden, Golden Axe, I remember being in there, Double Dragon and Turtles. And we'd literally <laughs> like, you know, we'd be late for lessons back. We wouldn't have lunch, we'd just put the money in the arcade machine. Yeah, it's a swimming pool, strangely <laughs> for me. So I go to the swimming pool to play arcade games rather then get fit. <laughs> yeah, our swimming pool had Galaxians. That was yeah. um, that was a that was well worth the uh, doing a few whips and then coming out and playing that. 
So you, I mean, did you learn piano and music and stuff when you were young as well? Were you really into that? I was, well, I wasn't into, into that, but I was persuaded by my parents. I don't think I was persuaded, I was forced. <laughs> that's, a, that's a strong word, but you know what I mean. I was, you're going to go and learn the piano because that's what everyone in my family had done. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was when I was about six and I hated it, it was boring. Um, but when I, my first, I wouldn't say it's a synthesizer, but my first keyboard was a little Casio VL tone. Oh, nice. And um, you, you would have heard it on Trio's Da Da Da. It's like, it's a really iconic sound if you if you hear it. I thought, oh, this is fun. This this could be this this is more interesting than the piano. Um, and then also showing my age here, I went to the organ shop in my town <laughs> because every town has to have an organ shop. And I said, I want I want a bigger version of this. Um, and he said, Oh, well, what you really need is you need to start learning the organ. Which is a pretty, even back then, it was a pretty stuffy, stuffy instrument to learn. Mm. But um, I was hooked. I, I was going for lessons there and I, I finally, I think, you know, begged and pleaded and Christmas and birthdays into one. I got a, my first home organ. And the fact that you could change the sounds and you had two manuals so you could play left hand with one sound and right hand with the other. And um, it wasn't quite as cool as a synthesizer. But it's what got me started. <laughs> One step closer. Yeah, and I thought, and as I was doing that, that's when I started getting into playing computer games at home. I got a Spectrum for Christmas. And um, hopeless at it, but I was trying to, because it, all it had was that single monophonic beep, didn't it? But I was trying with, with basic to squeeze something out of it. And I thought, if I could mix doing what I love with the home organ and computer games... That'd be fantastic. <laughs> so that was sort of the twelve-year-old dream was what I wanted to do, and um, that really stuck because I'm now doing it thirty-five years later. <laughs> well, was there any like computer music that had influenced you back then or inspired you to? It wasn't until I got um, well, it, it wasn't mine actually. I, my my best friend had a Commodore 64, so there was the school rivalry even back then, you know. The, oh, my Spectrum's better than your Commodore. No, my Commodore's better than your Spectrum. But, um, yeah, he won that argument because I'd go round there on the way to school and he'd be playing a game and the music was always great. It would be, you know, um, Monty on the Run of Thing, Thing on the Spring and it was Rob Hubbard's stuff. I'd hear that thinking, that is absolutely incredible. I want to do that. I don't know how to do it, but I want to do that. And um, that was the sort of start of the love affair with the Commodore 64. We were on a panel together, weren't we, a few months ago with Rob Hubbard. Right. And like you were like us, you were like, you know, we were all like, we're oh. not worthy and you were joining us. <laughs> I, I didn't realise that until that, that morning when I, one of the people said, right, OK, it's upstairs, go, go and meet the guys. And I was stood behind Rob Hubbard and I thought, of course he's on this as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. So I had to really rein it back in, sort of the fanboy. I think we're all the same, but, you know, I think the SID chip, though, there was just something about that. I mean, it, it was unrivaled at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, and of the 8-bit days and probably even 16-bits, there's nothing to touch it because it is, it's a synthesizer chip that's inside a home computer. I, I don't know what they were thinking, but, you know, great that they, that they did it. I mean, I'm, they probably got it cheap from somewhere or something. <laughs> no, in Commodore, almost certainly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> were you uh, coding in binary then? Uh, how were you making music on the old software? Um, until the Amiga, um, on the Commodore and, and uh, Spectrum, 
I couldn't get my head around machine code. So it was all it was all in basic, and it was it was hopeless because um, you know what it's like when you type in. Well, <laughs> maybe you don't. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't. When you type in prog- you used to type in programs from magazines, and they'd never run. They'd no. never work. So imagine trying to do that by yourself without you know anything to go by. It's like, well, I'll do this. Does that? Does anything happen? Yeah, maybe. So it was all just poking at it, you know, and hoping something would happen. But it wasn't until 16-bit days that um, I could actually make something that represented music. Which machine did you get then? Was it an Amiga when you went into 16-bit? Yeah, it was an Amiga 500. Um, I had it, I don't know, 87 or something, Mm. or 88, one of those those years. Um, And... I got a program called Sound Tracker, which a lot of guys would have would have used at the time, and it's like I can actually make music with this, with samples and everything. So that was that allowed me to stop mucking around trying to to prod these computers. I had no idea how to work, and suddenly I could make some sounds work. So um, that's that's kind of where the this could actually come to something started. Where did you get your samples from then? Did you make them yourself? Did you have like a sampler or was it I did have a sampler. I had a sampler and um I spent a Christmas holiday sampling my my Yamaha home organ <laughs> <laughs> which uh, went went really well as you can imagine. The problem at the time is I didn't really know much about sample rates or tuning samples so that, so what came out was generally terrible. But um there was also there was a way to rip sounds out of mods and um there was a lot of that that went on so um yeah not you wouldn't get away with it these days but you'd you'd watch a demo or play a game or something and if you could get hold of the the mod file you could use this program you could rip out the samples and then bob's your uncle you've got your own little you know setup going well even a lot of games back then would use samples from commercial releases it was in the charts and like you know they got away with it then it was yeah it was the wild west (laughs) it really (laughs) was i mentioning no names there was a um a housemate of mine who um was working on a cd32 game and he took in his record collection because the guys would take in their cds and listen to it and the music, musician at the time just was rifling through his CDs, grabbing bits he liked, and that went out for the soundtrack. Well, you worked for uh, Houston and Psygnosis for a little bit? No. Um, the, my housemate was working for Psygnosis, ah. and um, there was one panicked evening when he came back and said, our, our composer's just disappeared. We haven't seen him for weeks. So he set me off... Um, writing music for their game on the off... Not on the off chance, but in case this guy never came back. You know, he'd done a runner or done a Lord Lucan or something. So um, so I was writing music for that, but he returned. Damn his eyes. <laughs> and um, the Houston thing was some freelance stuff um, way back in the day when I was on uh, a thing called CompuNet. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. It was... Like, like a bulletin a, board, sir. Yes, yeah. it was a bulletin board on the, on the 64. And... Um, the companies of the day one there was like CRL and Houston and um, countless others, and you could just email these people, well, you know, send them a, a mail and stuff. And um, I mean, I was like fifteen; I was absolutely green, you know, wet behind the ears. But I was like, "I'll, I'll do music for you, Mister," you know, <laughs> and, um, and um, I'd do a bit of freelance that way. But they were just tip, you know, tip of the iceberg, really. I, I, I wouldn't say that was. Um, 
really the start of my career proper. It was just mucking around. You made a good point there with CompuNet, though, because it's kind of, I suppose, it's a bit like Twitter today, isn't it, where you can reach out directly to them? Yeah. But it was a bit even more underground back then, unless you were in the circle, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, when you think about it, it was pretty before its time, but um, there was games on there and there was a, you know, what you, you would have called RI, um, RIC. And there was like a chat, room, yeah. chat room and stuff. And um, for me, it was the composers and they were on there too. So you could get to talk to people like Wally Beban or Matt Gray or something. And, you know, a couple of years before when I was just reading magazines, that was absolutely unheard of. Just had to ignore the phone bill when it came in, didn't you? Don't, don't, <laughs> don't talk about the phone bill. I had no... My, my problem was I had no idea of sort of geographically where I was. And I think you could only get... There was a really limited a number of people that could be on each. Um, so you'd have, like, you know, the, the London number and then the... the Bedfordshire number or something like that and it was possibly as low as eight people on that line so if it was busy I'd just sort of go well that's probably close I'll ring <laughs> Cardiff and get on that way and um, yeah my parents were really happy about that every quarter when the bill came in I got my modem took off me by my mum, I remember. I think I ran up a £360 phone bill in a month. Yeah, oh, sure, impressed. I don't miss those days. <laughs> no. Well, you also had a band as well. <laughs> was that all sex, drugs and rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> it was none of those three things. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. that was sort of uni days, so um, it was. We all, we all wanted to be on top of the pops. And... Um, I wanted to make music somehow and that was that was one way to sort of you know to 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 try it out but I think I was the I was the over obsessed one from the, you know I was the one that was ah, this could be it guys this this is going to be it we've got a gig this in, is the track this is the track <laughs> we got a gig in Dunstable and four people have said they'll turn up um when the others were getting into professional uh you know jobs and stuff I'm like Actually, no, we've, we've done that now. I think it's time to, to grow up a bit. Well, how did you get the job at Rare then? Um, that was purely, purely by luck. Um, my three flatmates all ended up in the industry and, and I was the only one that was on the dole. So I was, I was there all day writing music. I didn't have a job though, so I didn't have any money, but they they would bring home games to play and they'd bring home, more importantly, games magazines. Mm. And um, I was flicking through the edge and it was just a press advert saying, we're looking for a musician, you know, give that a go. I'd been writing to various companies, um, sending off my, my dat tapes and stuff, which were the, the thing at the time. And I sent it away and didn't think, give it any more thought because it, I think... It was just before Christmas or something, so there was no response. And then suddenly a letter came through saying, yeah, I, um, come up for an interview in, in three weeks or whatever, whatever it was. And um, if you could write a piece of orchestral music and a, and a racing game piece, then that'd be great. And uh, that's what I did. And lo and behold, got the interview and I thought, well, you know, I think it went all right, but I don't really know because... Um, Dave was interviewing me and he was asking me all these tricky questions. And I thought, oh, he's catching me out, <laughs> you know. And uh, I said, oh, we'll let you know in a week. Three weeks went by and my girlfriend at the time said, oh, you haven't got it, have you, you know. And then the letter came through and said, yeah, can you start in a month? <laughs> it's like, I was living in London at the time and they, and they were obviously in Warwickshire. I was thinking, 
I, this is actually happening. I'm going to have to move and, and everything. That's it's pretty serious. I have to find a flat and everything. And yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. The first, I, I think the first one I went to was an absolute dive. I, I lasted a week there, but it was, it was an awful place. Um, I got there and there was a drunk man singing in in the living room, and he was like, oh, "You can have that one." I was like, right, okay, <laughs> fair enough. He said, "Yeah, the other guy's upstairs. He was after your wardrobe. He just got out of prison last week." Like, oh my god! Oh, nice. and, and he said, "And the and the other girl, she's just run away from home." I'm thinking, what have I done? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm here to do my first professional job. <laughs> yeah, that was a bad move. But, you know, thinking of Rare at the time and going there, I mean, did it feel like it was a really exciting place to work and did you appreciate, you know, what a big thing it was? Oh, absolutely. It was it was insane. I mean, these people were ultimate play the game. Mm. You know, that for me, as a little 13-year-old with a Spectrum, they were the games I wanted. Um, no one could match them. And then I remember there was there was a, that article in one of the Amiga magazines, I think, sort of '87, where they said, "Oh, look, Ultimate have become rare." And there was that picture of them all outside the the manor house. I thought, "All oh, right," and it was all alien to me, sort of, you know, the NES. Never heard of it. What's that? Consoles? I thought that went out with the Atari, you know, twenty six hundred. Um, but then. Having caught up on what they'd been doing, it was like, oh my god! You know, they never went away. They've just been carrying. You know, they've continued, but they've they're sort of massive worldwide. Um, so yeah, it was it was a very tense couple of months to start with because um, the quality bar was so high, and um, I thought I, I don't. You know, it was that kind of I can't believe I'm actually here. <laughs> so it was like better get better get. Better get uh, me by, you know, crap straight and start start pulling my weight. Kind get of serious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you made a good point there as well because a lot of people don't realise, especially younger listeners who might kind of get their history of gaming from YouTube today, that, you know, the NES and stuff, it wasn't as big as stuff like the, the Commodore 64 and the Spectrum. I knew, I think, one guy at school I knew had a NES. Yeah, but... I had a friend and I was like, what is this weird, weird device from overseas? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, a bit more with the snares. I, I, my friends would would have would have got those, mm. um, but yeah, before that, it was it was quite alien to me. And, and we, all my sort of friends and stuff were into STs and Amigas at the time. And um, I didn't realise until quite recently that the Amiga just flopped in America. Uh, they'd all moved over to Nintendo, whereas we were still in the sort of home computing um, part of it. Trying to convince your parents that you're doing your homework on it as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, your first job at Rare was Killer Instinct, so that kind of must have been a lot of pressure coming on to such a huge title. It, yeah, it was, but at the same time I was very young and naive and quite cocky. I think when, you're, when you are young, you can kind of just take those sort of things on and it's not so much of a big deal. Um, obviously it was, it was pretty scary you know, amazing to be in that in that environment. And I, I to be able to, to think at the time that I'm actually making an arcade machine, which was, you know, where I'd, all those years ago, I just loved arcades and got so excited by going there and, and always played, you know, whatever was the latest game and you'd, ki- you'd keep up with the new sort of new advances in the graphics and everything. Seeing what they had when I turned up just blew me away. I mean, at the time, the graphics were coming back and and um just the quality of the rendering and stuff was just like 
this is amazing. I'm, I, I'm actually going to do an arcade machine. Well, yeah, that was the difference with consoles, wasn't it? That you had the arcade first, and that was like the prototype, and then it would exactly, be yeah, consoleized. Yeah, yeah um, it was quite, in a way, it was it was a an easy in to the industry because um, I've mentioned this before, but at the time, I thought I thought chip music was kind of dead. I thought it was all CD playback because of um, the PlayStation and well, the CD thirty two, to be honest, at mm-hmm. the time which was kind of had I know it didn't do so well but at the time it had just come out and you know who knows what how it would have done um so I was quite surprised when Dave was down down the corridor working on Donkey Kong Country with his minuscule memory and he had you know cutting all those samples down and and I was thinking well thankfully I don't have to do that I've got loads of memory to to play with for the killer instinct um, and then that really did bite me on the behind in 12 months' time when I was told I had to make it fit on the SNES. Yeah. <laughs> Don't! Yeah. Hoist by my stupid petard. <laughs> you know, we're talking about arcade memories there as well, and I mean, for me, I vividly remember the first time I ever saw Mortal Kombat in the arcade. And again, that was kind of digitised graphics, and it just blew me away when I first saw it. And obviously, it's fair to say there was quite a Mortal Kombat influence on Killer Instinct. Yeah, well, it, it was... It was um, I mean, we 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 were in cahoots with Williams mm. and Midway, and we were using their hardware. So um, there was quite a strong bond there, really. And that was the game at the time to to beat. Mm. I mean, we weren't going for Street Fighter. I think Street Fighter Two was was always going to be the king. But um, yeah, that was kind of our main competitor. I think um, Mortal Kombat. And uh, Mortal Kombat had like special features with the sound, like as the fighting would get more intense the sound would speed up and stuff and that was also replicated yeah we had what i think we called them the i think we called them the energy tunes or something so when you were down to your last you know your last couple of dots of of energy it would do that um i think we first of all we tried with three different levels of intensity but memory although it was great compared to the snares it was still pretty pretty small mm. I think we had four meg for everything. That was sound effects and I think about half an hour's worth of music. So it was, it sounds awful. Now I was pl- I was I was researching it earlier this year to, when I was giving a talk on on how we did it, how we squeezed it all in, and um, you got away with it in the arcade because everything was it was all blaring, all the noise was blaring, and you had everyone else in in competition. But if you just listen to those those compressed tracks it wasn't even mp3 it was bef- it was before then so it was you know some proprietary compression that they'd worked on at midway um or williams sorry and um yeah it's it sounds like um you've got your track and you've pushed it underwater <laughs> so bubbly <laughs> you also worked on uh was it donkey kong land with david wise on the um yeah that was my game boy that was the, the yeah the gate the original game boy um which was again it was the one extreme to the other but it was i loved it because it was going back to that kind of sid chip 8-bit style limitation limitation yeah get so getting the melody right and and making that work and and then you you sort of try and get the chip to do what it can do sort of you know tricks and and stuff like that um not that the game boy had many tricks obviously (laughs) it was pretty pretty basic but i i did enjoy doing those tunes well, Killer Instinct 2 was meant to come out for the snares. It was. It what was. What happened there? I think it was just the timing. 
I was still working on that in 97. I think it was being done in case the N64 was going to slip. And it got delayed a lot, the N64. It got delayed a lot. I mean, it was originally 95 it was meant to come out. And um, so I think that was their backup plan because Killer Instinct 1 was a backup plan on the SNES. That was never meant to happen. It was always going to be... The arcade was going to come out for the N64 straight away. But because of the delay, they thought, right, we're doing the SNES. And um, whilst I was working on the sequel on the snares they were also working on killer instinct gold for the n64 and i think nintendo just said well you know there's there's no point now the we've the hardware's out so it would sort of take away the limelight a little bit because you did a whole soundtrack didn't you Uh... it was it was all done i did all the tunes and um because it was this the the second i mean i didn't do i only did those two snares games because it was the second snares game i picked up all the you know, sort of the learning from the first one, had a load of new tricks to, to play with. I was so happy with the, the way they were sounding <laughs> when it got cancelled. I was like, oh. And <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that now, it's probably rose-tinted glasses because I, I guess if, if I heard them now, they'd be awful. But, you don't you know, in my head, they were the best things ever. But that's, who knows where that is. That's in Rare's basement somewhere. Well, I remember reading about the, well, the Ultra 64, it was called at first, wasn't yeah. it? Like you said, about two, maybe even like 92, 93, I remember reading about it. Um, Project Reality and how it, it was yeah. um, Silicon Graphics, I think, wasn't it? The, the graphics on there that was powered by. And yeah, it, it was, it was the, the way it was being sold was, um, it was like, a, you know, having a Silicon Graphics machine in your home. And yeah. um, there was all these technical sort of videos and advertising of, of what it was going to look like. And it was it was like the worst early 90s graphics <laughs> you can imagine. It was like, imagine this. Dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and they were trying to, you know, they'd, they'd cut back to a family looking surprised or something like that as if they were playing their game or something. Um, but the reality was quite different, <laughs> obviously, because they had to actually fit it into a console and sell it for a price where it wasn't going to be astronomical. And the PlayStation had been out for a couple of years. I mean, do you remember when you first got your hands on the N64 then and what you kind of thought of the hardware when you first got to work on it? It was good. I was I was happy with it. Um, as an audio team, we were we believed the hype a little bit. It was, you know, was, as, as I said, it was still new to the industry and every every time a new generation came out, it would always, oh, it's going to do this and it's going to do that. And it never quite does what they say it does, but it always, you know, it's obviously better than what was what we meant before. So um, we were we were led to believe that it was gonna you could have a hundred sound channels, whereas we had eight with the snares. And we think, oh wow, that's amazing. We're gonna do so much stuff with that. And that was if you if you used the whole processor and did nothing else, <laughs> you could have a hundred sound channels because it didn't have a dedicated. Um, sound chip, so you had to wrestle with with everyone else to say, well, what if we have these, you know, what if we have eight, what if we have 12, and um, can we have this much memory of the cartridge? It was was a constant battle. Were you negotiating when you were making the games then, were you? How much you got, which part of the CPU? Uh, Yeah, it was how much you could have. I I think um, as the coders got better at, you know, compression and and, uh, better techniques and stuff, the, the channel count would go up. I think um, Robin had 16 on Conquer, and I, I think we had 12 on GoldenEye or something. But mm. um, the, con- the cartridges were getting bigger as well because that was that was the other thing. The great stuff about cartridges you could you could um, 
I think the first one, Blast Core, was 8 meg or something, and that's 8 megabit, so that's, that's Nintendo's megabytes, yeah. um, whatever, so it wasn't actually 8 meg. Um, I think Goldeneye was 12, and I think by the end of the N64, they were like 32 or something. You could feel the weight of them. <laughs> they were heavier, <laughs> heavier cartridges. Well, you mentioned Blast Corps, and I love the soundtrack of that. It was really like dancey, ravey kind of <laughs> pumping soundtrack. What music were you listening to at the time when you were? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a bit of an industrial boy, actually, um, but also the, sort of the the house influence was 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 rubbing off because um, a lot of the guys at work would listen to that after after five o'clock you were allowed to have your own music on um, so that's when the stereos would get turned on stuff like that and it would be you know whatever of, of the popular tunes of the day yeah <laughs> that, that early N64 period had like a proper rave yeah <laughs> <laughs> represented element. era didn't they yeah, yeah. <laughs> 90s, <wasn't> it? <laughs> but there's a lot of samples in that as well that soundtrack yeah um, yeah it was um it's showing his age maybe a little bit, but that was at the time when, you, you know, that was what you do, <laughs> what I do anyway. Well, let's talk about the most famous game probably that Rare ever did, um, Goldeneye. Now, I remember seeing the trailer for the movie with Pierce Brosnan, and it's one of these rare instances where the video games way outlive the movie. I don't think many people want to go, go back and watch Goldeneye, the movie these days, but people still play the game and enjoy it. When did you first hear about the the license getting used by Rare and what was kind of the process of them getting to make that game? Um, well, I'm sure this is a story as old as time, but it was the first I, the first time I heard about it, we were at, actually at a um, computer show showing off Killer Instinct. And one of the programmers of that project was Martin Hollis. And um, I think we were just, we must have been, We'd gone to get a cup of coffee or something, and uh, he was talking about it. And it was so early then; it was still in at the time when they were considering doing it as a, a SNES game. And um, it just—it didn't really feel real because I thought, well, God, not Golden. I so I don't think I don't even know if he had a, a title at that point. But you know, James Bond. Like, wow, that's that's pretty that's pretty serious. You know, doing a license like that. But then at the same time. I still had in the back of my mind, you know, the 80s uh, programs and films and stuff e. like that. E.T. and stuff like that. <laughs> well, yeah, but there was, there was a glut of them. It would, it would always be a sideways, a sideways scroller, um, shoot them up or something like that. Ocean were like the king of doing Yeah, that, lethal weapon and yeah. stuff. Yeah, like Ocean and Elite, I think, yeah. used to do tons of them. And they started to get a bit of a bad rap. Um, but obviously they were sellers because... Um, why buy a sideways scroller when you can buy one that's called, I don't know, The, the Living Daylights or something like that. Well, also, Bond was on a bit of a kind of low at that point. You know, the, the films had come out and there wasn't that much interest in James Bond. No, it had gone a bit stale, I think, mm. hadn't it? Um, and uh, you know, Bronhon was there and he was sort of the, the new Bond and uh, it, the, it was a, a, a new era of possibility, I suppose. It might might get popular again so did you sit and kind of just binge watch bond and <laughs> research that <laughs> i didn't actually um i'd i had them all in the back of my head anyway because they were classic christmas fodder yeah you know it would always be it would always be christmas day wouldn't it you you know the, the tea time bond film and i for me it was i mean they you know you always 
they say that people people's favourite Bond was was the one you grew up with, and and mine was Roger Moore, as uncool as that might be. But you know that was that was that's what you get given. As, <laughs> they're the cards you don't get, get to pick it, yeah. No, exactly. Um, so there, I knew I sort of knew them by, like the back of my hand anyway. With the exception of a few of us going down to the film set and taking some pictures and stuff, we we didn't really know much about how the film was going to be. So if you think of a classic film tie-in game, it needs to be out at the same time as the game. Mm. So um, if we had managed that, it would have been maybe not as uh, remembered as it was because we would have kind of had to second-guess what the film was like. <laughs> the fact that it came out when Tomorrow Never Dies came out, we had the luxury of uh, <laughs> of watching the film over and over and um, and taking in the atmosphere of it. Well, the sound effects I found were a really important part of the game, especially stuff with the golden gun, like pew, and then that da-da at the end. Um, how did you go out creating them and kind of getting them together? Um, it's it's funny actually because I, in my head, I. I think there's um a lot more in there than there is but um what was it last year we we did a little panel with paul jury yeah um about the 20th anniversary and and, and that, at that point i was sort of trying to find some as much information as i could about it and um i think there was only like 120 sounds or something <laughs> there's no speech which is absolutely incredible when you you know thinking about it now but i mean we would have now we'd have more than 120 footsteps just for one surface or something. It's ridiculous how, how things have changed. But we had minuscule memory, had very, you know, not much to play with at all. So we just squeezed what we could out of it. And I think we, we, we just lucked out that what we put in there, people were like, yeah, this, this sounds good. Because um, otherwise, if we'd put 120 turkeys in there we would have been in trouble you know what gun they're coming with down the corridor you can hear the yeah, gun yeah. you know well, i think it's good as well that you know you did make a really good point there about the fact there's no speech in it but i think if it did have like sample pierce brosnan speech in it would have probably aged really badly now yeah and i did i i brought this up with um dave and martin actually because um we we were sent a dat of pierce brosnan recording and i i imagine it was for a pinball game, a GoldenEye pinball game or something. It was little, little one-liners, mm. like, we've got all the time in the world and mine's a pint and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And um, I didn't really know what we could do with it, but um, I talked to, talked to Dave Martin about it. They were like, now you see, we've got, you know, with the memory we have, it would get so repetitive that it would just get ridiculous. And, and they were absolutely right. And so the fact that I think it was right to go with the fact there's no speech in there the, the only speech really is uh baron samadhi's laugh really. well nintendo at the time i mean they were very much seen as a family brand they showed concerns about the amount of guns in the game didn't they did you have to make any changes um we had to tone down the blood i know the the blood was a lot gorier um during um, development and we took out uh, correct me if i'm wrong because i can't quite remember but we had to take out throwing knives because we had those in and um nintendo said there's no way you can have those in that's that's too near the too near the knuckle so they they got they got um taken out um but no they 
it was. I'm surprised they went with it because for the time, um, Nintendo were not known for any anything like that at all. So there must have been some 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 arm twisting behind behind the scenes. I think to get that game out. Well, all the levels, like uh, facility and stuff, they were all different remixes of the Bond tune. Were you kind of thinking, oh, I'm going to make a breakbeat-y kind of snare version on this, or I'm going to make, you know, an up-tempo version on this? Yeah, I, it was... We had the licence to, to use the, the theme tune, which was obviously great, because it's got so many sections, and you can you can take this set, you can take the bass line out of it, or you can take the, uh, you know, the stabs, and you can just use those little snippets, and you know immediately that that's Bond. Yeah, it's so recognisable. Exactly, exactly. It was, it was given to us on the plate. And um, I think we were, let's say, a little inspired at times by some of the other Bond tracks um, that went before us, like um, you know the Duran Duran one and stuff. But really, it was also, also it was um, making music that we liked. I mean, Grant, Grant was obviously involved just as much as I was, um, and then adding the Bond theme in, and it was like, da-da! <laughs> so I've written a track I like, and it sounds like Bond. It was, it was, it, this stuff writes itself. <laughs> well, you know, obviously it was an N64 exclusive. If it had come out, for example, on like a, a CD-based system like the PlayStation, do you think you would have gone in a different direction with the music? I think it, it would have, music, music-wise, it would have been the same, but I think we would have gone a bit fancier mm-hmm. um, with the... Uh, with the instrumentation, because that's that was the the advantage of a CD-based system. You, it wasn't um, restricted by sample memory or or channel count or anything like that. But um, as I've said, I've said previously, it was it's nice to have those limitations because it it stops you from being lazy, and um, you really try and squeeze squeeze as much out as you can of the system. Well, did you think GoldenEye would become such a huge game and? The soundtrack in it often gets rated like one of the best in history. <laughs> does that blow your mind? <laughs> uh, yes, yes, of course it does. Um, I had no idea what the response would be like. I, um, as a lot of people will tell you, when you've been working on a project for you know two plus years, you lose all kinds of reference to it. You, you don't know if it's any good or if it's brilliant or anything, and. Um, Nobody really knew. I mean, it's it's gone down in history now, but at the time, people were wary, and, and even Nintendo were like, yeah, we'll make a few. I think they made um, three-quarters of a million copies because for them, they had to make the physical co- copies. It wasn't just, you know, digital or just running off CDs. They and, were... it, and it was a slow start, right? It, yeah. It, yeah, it was a slow start in sales, but then game exactly. momentum. They just It just um, kept on going. They thought, oh, we've made another... 300,000 and they've sold out we've made another blah 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 and and um it was the classic word of mouth thing i think you know people go oh have you played this have you and or they go around to their friends because you had the multiplayer mm. and um and then, then suddenly history gets rewritten and everyone's like i always knew it was gonna be a good it was gonna be a good <laughs> game <laughs> well it was really the first great console fps wasn't it really well it was it was it was certainly different because i up to that point, they'd mostly been like Doom. PC ports. Yes, exactly. And um, uh, I think there was... there was sort of, People didn't think that consoles could do that sort of game. Um, and 
maybe they they couldn't because the frame rate was wasn't that brilliant, but it was it was enough to get people to play it. Um, but yeah, it was it was thanks to Martin Hollis, it was a brave a brave ambition that he had, and it wasn't just a, another vertical shooter or a, an on rails game, which is was one of the um, muted options. Mm. Um, but yeah, it turned out to turned out to be all right. Well, next at Ray, you worked um, doing Diddy Kong Racing, the sound effects, and, yep. uh, with David Wise. Um, yes. Did you come up with character voices and stuff for that? Or how were, did that come about? Were, was that you? <laughs> <laughs> well, they were all recorded in-house. Um, it was back in the day when you could, you know, just do that. We'd just grab a friend and, and we'd have a go. So um, I'd grab someone on the team or someone, someone from one of the other teams that I knew was up for doing it and I say right this is going to be uh, this is a turtle <laughs> what, do a turtle what, voice what have you got and um, yeah it was that was that was good fun and it was a I, it was a quick project it was um, the, the guys had been on it for a while when they brought me onto it but we were in this um, this barn that was that had just been converted it was a, a baking hot summer there was no air conditioning <laughs> It was just like a tin, a tin shed, basically. And I remember I was, I'd get in as early as I could before it got hot because by about nine o'clock, it was like being in an oven. And because Rare were in the middle of this field, you got all these little midges that just came in and sort of thunderflies or whatever they were, but they'd be everywhere. So you'd be constantly you know, trying to hit, bat them off you. And uh, meanwhile, we had this crazy deadline to try and get this game out it was uh yeah it was an interesting summer that was did it feel quite isolated working there then it was an absolute microcosm but i really loved it um you as 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 a bunch of mostly single guys in their 20s early 20s or whatever it was um perfect because we just go in there and do what we love doing and um the fact that we didn't have a life outside of that <laughs> didn't seem to matter that much. Um, I mean, I've, I've said, and I know other people have said in the past, that we didn't have the internet back then. Uh, I, I didn't even know... At that point, I didn't, didn't even know it existed. Um, and so you were, you were just in that little isolated creative bubble, if you like. Probably would have been different if you had like Facebook popping up all day and tweets and all that, wouldn't it? Wouldn't I guess? have got anything done. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely nothing done. How how did you feel about working on Perfect Dark, and uh, how did you feel it was as a sequel? I thought it was great. Um, again, it was for me. It was like doing the, the Killer Instinct two again. It was this. It was the taking everything you'd learnt on the previous game and just making it better. Um, and yeah, immediately I I'd. Because I could go back and I, I knew, well, this this didn't work or this worked and, and what have you. And I think we had a bigger cartridge, so we had a bit more memory and we had some more code that had been written for the music system and stuff. So it was it was really um, really fun doing it. So why did you leave her? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. It was a hard. It was a very hard decision. Um, but um, I think most of most of '98, it was sort of. Everyone was umming and ahhing what we should do, and um, we were. It was just one of those things where you, you again, you're, you're young, cocky, and you think 
I could probably do this by myself. It's the, it's like when the, the Spice Girls sack their manager or something like that. <laughs> Not that we were the Spice Girls, but you know what I mean? A band gets successful and then they go, well, we could do this on our own. There was a lot of feeling that that, that was, it was worth giving it. When, when are you going to do it? You've, you've been lucky to work at Rare and you've had these games under your belt and um, you've had success. It's going to open a lot of doors. And um, I think we had we had our um, sort of our golden moment, if you like, to to do it. And we had to if we if we if we hadn't done it then, I don't think we'd ever have done it. Yeah, now we're never pretty exactly. Much. Yeah. yeah. Well, starting on the Time Splitters series, it was kind of a total new concept, but still using the same engine. So there was fam- familiarity. Yeah. It yeah, it was a different. It was a different engine. It was built from the ground up, but it was it was written by Steve Ellis, who had obviously worked on Goldeneye. So he had everything in his head how to, well, this is how we do this, this is how we do that. Yeah. Um, I think we're ev- we were even using the, um, the same um, graphics engine at the time. So I think it was called Multigen or something. It, was, it later became Alias and then Maya. Um, and so um, he knew how to sort of, set the code up for the artists to get the most out of their levels so they could make them run at a, a good frame rate. Because that was the one thing we absolutely wanted. We wanted Time Splitters to, to run as smooth and fast as we could. And the four-player action as yeah, well. exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, we talked before about when the N64 came along and it was like a, a leap in generations. The PlayStation 2 must have seemed like a whole new dawn at the turn of the millennium. What did you think of that? And do you remember when you first kind of got your hands on that hardware? It was great. Uh, it felt it felt like um, we'd finally hit the future mm. in, in a way. Um, the memory was still quite titchy, um, but nowhere near as bad as it was in the in the past. Well, Time Splitters, you know, it, it got a great reputation. It was critically acclaimed, but you were doing the sound effects, the voice, and the music, so you yeah. must have been driven mad by that series. <laughs> by by number. F- Number three, I think my head was was just about to pop. Yeah, because <laughs> um, each one got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, by three, we had. I mean, every one of those games had so much content in. Um, you know, we had the by by Future Perfect. We had quite a sizable story mission. We had cutscenes. We had over I don't know 120 odd characters. All had different voices and stuff like that. Had the, um, and then all the game modes for multiplayer and stuff. It was it was mind 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 numbing how we got that done. Well, it was multi-platform too, wasn't it? It had Xbox, yeah. PS2, GameCube. Even I remember it came it was out. Game, yeah, GameCube and Xbox. Um, the the conversions were all done by one guy, mm. um, guy called Mike Armstrong. He he did the GameCube and the Xbox single handedly. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Well, the GameCube again sat those small discs, didn't it? So, did you have to kind of compress stuff on there to fit them? Under? Yes, we did. We, um, I know the for I think it was Future Perfect. We we had to squeeze the music down a, a, a lot more, and there was a point when um, there was a point when one of the coders came and he said, "Yeah, we're we're not going to be able to fit it all on." So, um, draw a line in the sand, and then that will be on the GameCube, and the rest won't be. We managed to find a different compression um, routine for the music, which meant it could all fit on. But the line in the sand, which was actually a line in the code, 
commenting all out the music for the GameCube was never removed. So it was all on the disc, oh, but no. no one could ever hear it. <laughs> Well, I heard there was even a HD version of Time Splitters kind of flying around the office early on. Yes, that's something that we've, we've I think we've done about four versions of it now of HD. Um, we certainly had one running on PC when we were Crytek UK and we got to the point, we actually got to the point where we were playing it networked through the office and giving it some some testing and stuff. But the powers that be uh, in Frankfurt said, nah, no, just put it on the shelf, no one's interested in that. Do you, do you think we'll ever see a Time Splitters HD or a Time Splitters 4? Well, there was a Time Splitters HD. It was a it was an Easter egg in Homefront 2, in Homefront the Revolution. Ah. You could find an arcade cab and there was um, the first few levels on there, which were... Um, made in, in HD. Actually, uh, by Matt Phillips, who's, who's been doing the Mega Drive game, mm. um, Tanglewood. Yeah. Um, Rumour has it that if you knew the right code, you might be able to unlock the whole game, but um, that's just a rumour I've heard. Mm. Um, as for four... Googling. <laughs> <laughs> as for four, who knows? I mean, it, the, the licence belongs to Crytek. Mm. They picked that up when they took over Free Radical. So it's up to them, really. It's, it's the, ball's, the ball's in their court. Uh, the office is just down the road. It should go. <laughs> <laughs> so this might be a bit of a difficult one. I imagine your, your answer to this would change depending on the day of the week. But out of kind of all the games you've worked on, all the soundtracks, would you have like one particular favourite or one that you're really most proud of? It's Time, time Splits 2. Mm. Um, at the time... When I was doing it, I thought, "Oh, this is not this is not my best work. I don't. This, I'm struggling here. I don't know if this is any good." But looking back on it, I'm really proud of it. And um, uh, yeah, that's that that won't change from day to day. Well, unless I do a better one. <laughs> Must be like picking your favourite child a bit, though. I guess, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. which you, you could never do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you up to nowadays? Well, I'm still still banging out the tunes. Um, I'm working. Deep Silver Dambuster Studios, which is in Nottingham. Yeah, I used to live above there, and that was Crytek, Did you? and then it just suddenly oh, right. changed. changed didn't yeah. it? We, just, we just changed the sign one day. Maybe had a glass to the floor to <laughs> yeah, hear all your plans. Yeah. I was like, give me beta codes. <laughs> <laughs> you could have probably hacked into our Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, so I'm doing that, but I'm also doing um, some mobile stuff um, for a, a company called Crash Lab, which is uh, two guys that, from Rare. And through Radical, actually, what I'm talking about, Steve Ellis and Martin Wakeley, who um, I've worked with for many years, and I, I, I love the stuff they do. And um, that is kind of my sort of my fun projects, if you like, because they're shorter. They're, they're not these sort of console games that take years and years and years. And so we'll work on something that's maybe takes a year or something, and um, it's 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 more. Going back to my roots, if you like, it's uh, sort of picking up, picking up and playing immediately, and and um, sort of the sort of casual game gamer stuff. So um, yeah, I'm keeping busy. I think that's cool that that's kind of coming back as well because it did get to a stage where, unless you had like you know 20 hours a week to play games, you couldn't really yeah, and, and spend time. Doing that, that. that did kind of kill it for me, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I was always, I've always been someone that likes. 
I, I love computer games, but I prefer watching someone play them because I'm not very good at them and I don't have the time to put in. Mm. So I'd always watch housemates play play something and, and, and you know watch that or watch. I'd walk around the office and, and watch what people were playing. And much because you sort of get to enjoy it without having to um, redo everything ten times. But that's that's the beauty of YouTube now. Um, you know what I can sit down and watch through the latest. Um, um, you know, Battlefront or something, as long as I put no commentary in the search bar and um, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> it's like having friends again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It kind of goes back to right at the start of this interview. It's kind of like being in the arcade and you'd always get a group of kids around you looking over your shoulder and watching your gameplay. Yeah. So it's always been there, yeah, I guess, hasn't it? That's what Switch is and, yeah. you know, it's essentially that looking over. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's true. Well, Graeme, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you for having me. I know, yeah. Spending your Wednesday evening with two geeks screwing about your past might <laughs> not be your ideal evening, but we've really enjoyed it today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 